Now, I, I feel virtually blackmailed viciously into a question time tonight. Uh, so, so we'll carry on with Philippians, but so, some people here sort of, they, they, they hounded me. Um, I, mean, you know, I mean, they were here by quarter to eight. They hounded me with questions and, and kind of blackmailed me emotionally, uh, really making me feel obliged to do a question time so they could keep going. So I think, you know, having succumbed to that emotional blackmail, because I'm a bit of a softie, really. Um, question time. Ah, oh, right. It was her. She did it. Right. Um, the thing about church unity, the push towards church unity. Right. Do two two part questions. Two part Do you think it? A. Do you think it's the beginning of the one world church of the end times, whatever? Mm. Um, two. What the other part of the question? How do you combat people that talk about? Give you all the unity verses in the Bible about Christ wanting unity in the body, and um, all the people that argue for it. Right, how do you argue combat them? Against. Yeah, I'll take that one first. Against. Shoot them. No, 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 no. Seriously, in the question, all right, because how this happened, okay, is before, you know, before everyone got here at quarter to eight, uh, at eight o'clock, all right, we were sort of talking. And what came up was the fact that uh, at the moment on the Christian scene, I mean, you know, for instance, it's all very popular to, you know, like all get together, say, with the Catholic Church. So, you know, I mean, now it doesn't matter whether you're Methodist, Anglican, Baptist, House Church or whatever, but now the Catholics are in. And, um, and what I was saying was, in actual fact, um, it's, only, it's only in the last 30 years that an idea like that has ever been tolerated by genuine Christians. Um, up to about 30 years ago, if you look back through history, um, you'll not find a genuine Bible-believing Christian who would have anything to do with the Catholic Church as the Church. Obviously, you have plenty to do with Catholics. The same as you would communists or something like that. Obviously, if we don't mix with these people, we can't preach the gospel. But the point is, throughout history, genuine Christians have been perfectly aware of the satanic nature of the Catholic Church. It's only in the last 30 years with the charismatic movement that there's been this push towards this, the word is ecumenism. I, it's, you know, the ecumenical movement. All that matters is unity. All that matters is unity. Doesn't matter what you believe, it's unity at all costs, okay? Now, the last 30 years have been the aberration historically. Uh, so, in actual fact, when I say the Catholic Church is satanic, that statement, all right, I am stating what genuine Christians have universally believed throughout, by and large, the last 2,000 years. It's only in the last 30 years that there's been this blip, this strange aberration, whereby now genuine Christians are prepared to accept things that, as I say, up until the dawn of the charismatic movement, they wouldn't have touched with a barge pole. And, of course, one of the things that we've often seen here is that the main fight, one of the main fights that every church has, or the church has, is that it, 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 it's sort of keeping the spirit of the world out of it. We're Christians. Our thinking is determined by the word of God, not by the fads of the world out there. And at every point in history, all right, the church has had to resist the spirit, the thinking of the world, getting into it. Right? Now, isn't it strange, the last 30 years or so, there's been this big thrust amongst Christians, unity at any price. Unity, unity, unity. Now then, if we look at that, and then say, right, what is the spirit of the world today? Where is the world in its thinking? I'll tell you. Unity. Unity. Tolerance. Absolute tolerance. The only thing the world, by and large today, won't tolerate is intolerance. 
And it's completely true. There's been an incredible shift in thinking in the world. Everything's working towards one world, isn't it? The United Nations, you know, the UN, the new world order everyone is talking about. That is the spirit of the world, and it's creeping into the church. Unity at any cost. The buzzword today is oneness, all right? And that has been creeping into the church over the last 50 years or so. And in the last 30 years, it's kind of manifested itself uh, by the Christian church becoming increasingly hesitant to be dogmatic about anything that is going to isolate it from elements within it. All right, is he? Now, that is just the spirit of compromise. And as I say, it's only the last 30 years or so that this has really become a problem. Um, so the push for unity is on. And, uh, I mean, nowadays it doesn't... I mean, believe you me, on the one hand, in the institutional churches, I mean, it's like when, when the Archbishop of Canterbury, the new Archbishop of Canterbury was enthroned, all right, the week before last, all right, you know, and if it makes you want to spit, you're biblical. That was Paul's attitude as we'll see in a couple of weeks as we go on to Philippians. One of the verses we're coming up to in Philippians, won't be there for a couple of weeks yet, is look out for those dogs, look out for those evil workers. Now, Paul's words. So, if false teaching makes you want to spit, it may Paul want to spit as well. That's the biblical attitude. So serious is it? Now, when the Archbishop got enthroned, see all the Buddhist monks there? See? All religions welcome. After all, we're all praying to the same God, aren't we? Well, no, we're jolly well not. Because any worship, anything to do with a God other than the God who is revealed through the Bible is actually worship of the devil. Not knowingly. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I mean, a lot of them were from, you know, they were Greeks. And the Greek religion was that you could kind of, rather like the Roman Empire, you could pick your idol. I mean, anything was fundamentally worshipable, all right? Didn't really matter what you worship. You, you paid your money and you took your choice, all right? And Paul has to address at the Corinthian church the problem that a lot of them who got converted, okay, and they were now Christians and they were worshipping God, but some of them still, you know, the old ways, it takes time to free yourself from them, and they were still doing their idol worship thing. And what Paul wrote to me, he says, don't you realise behind every idol, and the Greek word for idol, idolong, it means a thing of naught, it means nothing. That's a really good word, because an idol is, is representing a god, but it's representing a god that doesn't exist. You know, so I mean, it's a, a massive, you know, sort of like con. But what Paul was saying, there you are, busily worshipping your idol, believing that a god lies behind it, but he says there's no god behind it, there's only one true god, and he's not in idols, he says you're worshipping demons. Behind every idol are demons receiving worship for themselves. Now, every other faith, all right, any worship of a god other than the one in the Bible is actually worshipping demons. Unknowingly, but it is satanically powered and charged. So, there we have the enthronement of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and there's the Buddhist monks. It speaks for itself. Interfaith services are all the rage. The Anglican Church is really into them. The Methodist Church is really into them, all right? So that now, uh, sort of like, you can get these various services, keep your eye on the press, sometimes they get reported, and you'll have, you know, the Anglican powers that be having a service with, you know, Mohammedans and, and well, you name it, all the religions, of the, they come together, all right? And this is a, you know, the cry is we're all praying to the same God. Well, you're not. You're not. You're actually in a situation like that, whether you realise it or not, praying to demonic power and you are opening yourself to demonic power. 
And the sad thing is that in the churches today, a lot of genuine Christians are happy to tolerate that. The Archbishop of Canterbury himself is a genuine Christian. He's a compromiser. He's a terrible compromiser. And he'll answer to God. But he is happy to go along with that. Can you see what I mean? He knows that part of his job is to conduct services where he is going to be worshipping in tandem with other faiths. Um, a few years ago, his predecessor, Runcy, he went to India. And Runcy came back from India singing the praises of their worship, of Hindu worship. And he worshipped at a shrine, an idol. And he came away saying, I was worshipping God. Now, this is, this is the danger. And sadly, many genuine Christians, because Runcy was also a genuine Christian. He is a born-again man of God, the same as the new bloke. But can you see the terrible compromises that these men are making? True believers, they may be, but they're playing around with the devil. And it's dangerous. And it's a tragedy that so many Christians today are willing to tolerate this. Now, having said that, there are also a lot of people who know the Lord in the Anglican Church, for instance, who stand against that. You know, they have marches outside these interfaith services and they protest and they say that's completely wrong. All right? And they're rightly identifying the utter abhorrence of that to God. And yet these Christians who are standing against interfaith services, they're all for getting together with the Catholic Church. Now, the dreadful mistake they're making is this. Catholicism is as different from Christianity as Islam. Catholicism is a completely different religion from Christianity. The reason that people are taken in is because it uses, it, it uses the same language. Let me give you another example. Now, let's take the Bishop of Durham. All right. Now, a bloke like him represents yet another strain of thought in so-called churches today. And this strain of thought, actually, it's in the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, it's in the Methodist Church, uh, it's in the United Reformed Church, and it's called modernistic theology, the modernists, or the radicals, as they're sometimes called. And these are the men, all right, who take the position, and one day we'll actually do, you know, a study so I can explain to you how it is it comes about. We haven't got time to do that tonight, but these men who take the position where they say the Bible is not historically true, but it represents spiritual truth. So, I mean, it's like the Bishop of Durham, he will say Jesus is the Son of God, but he wasn't born of a virgin, all right? He'll say Jesus is alive, but he didn't arise from the dead physically, is he? Oh, it's a total contradiction, you know. Now, again, those men are not Christians. If you want to get technical, they're existentialists, but we won't go into that now. But all they're doing is their people and the position they represent is they say that the God of the Bible is dead. I mean, you know, sort of like it's a load of rubbish. They agree with the atheists on that. You know, you, you can't expect 20th century man to believe this book. In that sense, they agree with, you know, loads of people. But what they say is they say that if we don't believe in something, we're in despair. And their position is, we've got to believe in something. Man cannot live in despair. Although we know the hope of the Christian gospel is gone, because it's not true, we can't live like that. We might as well go and blow our heads off. And they say we need to believe in something. Existentialism. And these men are Christian ones. What they say is, the best thing to believe in is the gospel. But they're believing in it, not because it's true, but because you need to believe in something. So all they do is take the language and the imagery and the symbolism, and they talk as if it's true, but without believing it is actually true. 
Therefore, if you say to the Bishop of Durham, do you believe Jesus is alive? He'll say yes. And he says yes because he needs to believe that. All right? But when you say, so Jesus was raised from the dead physically, was he? Oh, no. You can't believe that. You see, he's believing it not because it's true. He's believing it because he needs it to be true. Is he? Not because he believes it to be true, but because he needs to believe that it's true. But he doesn't actually believe it. All right. Now, that is another example. That, again, is a different form of faith. It's a different religion. It's as different from normal Christianity as um, Islam. It's a totally different faith. But the problem is, because these men deliberately use the same terminology as Christianity, it gets mistaken for the real thing. Now take JWs, or Mormons. They're not Christians. But they deliberately use Christian language. And therefore, because they're borrowing Christian language, people think they're Christians. They're not Christians. All right. So what we're seeing is whether it's the modernists who use Christian doctrine without believing it literally, all right, just because they need to believe in something, uh, or whether it's the JWs or the Mormons or the Christadelphians who use Christian language but aren't Christians. In exactly the same way, the best counterfeit of the lot has always been the Catholic Church. It's always been the best counterfeit of Christianity Satan's ever come up with. And that's why he's kept it on the go for so long. Now, if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, one of the sad things that many of the Christians who today represent the position of, well, you know, I mean, these Catholics, yeah, let's be one with them. You see, and now that more and more Catholics are getting baptised with Spirit and speaking in tongues, they think, well, there you are, it's all of God, isn't it? Well, not necessarily the Mormons get baptised with the Spirit and speak in tongues. There's a turn up for the books. Not many Christians realise that. Uh, I remember quite a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine who was a young Christian, um, her brother, I think it was, had got involved with the Mormons. She was a Christian, all right, and so were some of her friends. And they'd arranged an evening where the Mormons would bring one of their elders over, okay, and, uh, and they, they kind of debate it. And uh, her brother, who was getting tied up with them, the idea was he could sit and decide who are the true believers. Okay, um, and so they asked me if I'd go along, just to give them a bit of backup. You know, which I did. I mean, the discussions got nowhere. Things like that never. And the Mormons, you know, as it drew to an end. All right, they said, well, look, you know, should we just pray together? Now, I, I, I don't do that anymore. You know, I mean, it's no use praying with a JW. Or it's no use praying with a Mormon. You, you're praying to different gods. They're not praying to the Lord God of the Bible unbeknown to them, they're praying to the devil. You can't pray with them, you know. But, I mean, on, on that particular occasion, I kind of, I went along with it, and I, I just sat there. I thought, right, I'll, I'll watch very carefully. And, and it's like there was this time of prayer going on and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and, and just for one, mo you know, one moment, that there was this real charge of something in the air. I had my eyes shut, and it jolted me, and I opened my eyes. And one of the Mormon elders was just about to lay hands on the girl who'd asked me to go along because her brother was getting tied up in it. See? I mean, Mormons move in what you would call the gifts of the Spirit, but they're demonic counterfeits. What they are doing is through the power of demons. So let's not be surprised that in the Catholic Church there's a charismatic movement. All right. Now, I'll come on later to the question, are there genuine Christians? You know, there, all right. I'll come to that later. But sadly, so many Christians who are all for the Catholic Church, and let's get together with them, they don't actually know what that church teaches. And it's only when you actually get down to understanding 
what the Catholic Church teaches that you can start to see through it. But first of all, the history, all right? The Catholic Church emerged from something, you know, that, that happened around, you know, three, four, four hundred AD or something like that. And it was when one of the Roman Empire, emperors, Constantine by name, claimed to have become a Christian. Now, it's difficult to verify the claim, but it's highly unlikely that he became a Christian. Uh, you know, because, I mean, the nature of the supernatural stuff that got him converted was, well, dodgy to say the least. But anyway, he claimed to have got converted. Now, up till that point, you were a Christian in the Roman Empire on pain of death. And the reason was the Roman Empire had worship of Caesar. Whoever Caesar or the king was, or the emperor, you had to worship him as a god. They didn't mind what other gods you worshipped, as long as you worshipped him as well. Now, this was why the Christians and the Roman Empire never got on too well. Because the Christians knew, we can't worship Jesus as the one true God, all right, and then go along and sort of bow down to Caesar. And uh, the phrase that it was, Caesar is Lord. And that's why when Paul says, no one can call Jesus his Lord, but by the Holy Spirit, that phrase, is Lord, was accepted as God. That's what it meant. Kurios is God. Now, in the Roman Empire, you had to bow down and say, Caesar is God. You see, to be a Christian, you bow down and say, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord, right? So a lot of the Christians fell like flies because they wouldn't worship Caesar. And so they were killed. Now, what happened when this emperor, Constantine, said, I'm a Christian, right, was that he made Christianity the official faith of the Roman Empire, right? So at one fell swoop, it was no longer dangerous to be a Christian. That was good news. But the bad news was it worked very much in your favour, socially and politically, to become a Christian, isn't it? Because after all, if the emperor's a Christian, well, you better not stay of another faith. You see, they were used to, if you had a faith other than what Caesar said, you got your head chopped off. So when Constantine got, you know, said he got saved, I'm a Christian now. Well, as I say, it's highly dubious he ever did get converted. But can you see, for, for, for thousands and thousands, millions of people, there was a real ready-made incentive to start being a Christian. So loads and loads of people went over to Christianity. Now, whether or not this was genuine is highly dubious. Do you see what I mean? I mean, nowadays people switch faiths just like that, don't they, for convenience of marriage. You know, sort of like, uh, I mean, it's like, say, someone who would say, my upbringing is Christian. They're not really Christians, but that's my upbringing. And say they fall in love with a Jewish bloke. Well, the Jewish bloke's parents are going to raise hell unless this Christian becomes a Jew. So they say, all oh, right, I'll become a Jew then. Can you see, this is nothing to do with a genuine experience of God or whatever. It's purely a mercenary move. It suits you to take on a new faith. Well, this happened to millions of people when constant, well, in the years following Constantine becoming a Christian. Now, one of the things all right, that happened as well was that there were quite a few religious movements on the go that, that you know, had been around for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And uh, they were completely opposed to this Christian faith. You know, i.e. their beliefs were totally opposed to it. Now, the point is that when Christianity became the faith everyone was getting into, because it was official, okay, then obviously, for them, if they could make themselves look like they were Christian as well, they'd get adherence and their power would grow. Exactly the same as the JWs and the Mormons do today. They're not Christians, but they want you to think they're Christians. That makes them more acceptable, so their numbers might swell. Now, one of the religions that was around, okay, was a religion that originated in the Babylonian Empire. Okay, it was a very old religion that surfaced every now and then, all right? And it was, <coughs> now I've got to get this right, <coughs> the, 
the story goes, and, and history certainly supports the characters, but obviously history doesn't support the supposed story about the characters. All right. And the story is, it goes back to Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, we actually know from the Bible. Okay, He was a biblical character. He wasn't biblical how he lived. He was utterly opposed to God. Right. After the flood, Nimrod was the first person who really emerged as a kind of a leader of the then known world. I mean, in that sense, he was an antichrist figure. He really got everyone together under him. He was considered a mighty warrior and stuff like that. In some, in some translations, all right, you'll actually find, when it refers to it, it says, a mighty hunter of the Lord. All right. Well, it's not. In the Hebrew, it's a mighty hunter against the Lord. I mean, Nimrod knew who he was dealing with. He hated the Lord. And, and he, he got, you know, most of the then-known world following him because he was such a, a, a powerful guy. Now, he married, okay, a woman called Semiramis. And what happened was that the two of them got a real religion going together. Okay, you know, Nimrod and, and, you know, sort of like big world leader, blah, 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 and a real religion centering around them. Now, what happened was that Nimrod, he died, all right? He turned his toes up. Now, when you're just starting out on a new religion, it doesn't help when the founder member dies, does it? It was no problem for Jesus, because he was only dead for three days. He was alive again. But for any faith other than the true one, when your founder pops his clogs before the movement's really got underway, you're in trouble, aren't you? That's kind of the end of your movement. Now, what happened was that when Nimrod died, Semiramis, his wife, was pregnant with his child. And she was a clever woman, old Semiramis. Now, what happened was she gave birth to that child. And when the child was born, she announced that this child was Nimrod reborn, that Nimrod had ascended into godhood and became a god, and that now Nimrod was returning as a baby to his people, and the child was called Tammuz. Now, that's what Semiramis did. So she procreated this worship of Nimrod via her child called Tammuz by saying that her child was Nimrod returned to, to the earth, having attained godhood, all right, in his death. Now, this is all two, three, you know, sort of three, four thousand years before Jesus, you know, that this faith started. And it grew, it grew. Semiramis died, okay, obviously, comes to everyone eventually, doesn't it? And it had a priesthood. And so what happened then was that Semiramis, who was the wife of Nimrod, who in his death attained godhood and then returned as a baby in Tammuz. All right. When Semiramis died, being the wife of the god-man, she became the queen of heaven. Now, then, what happened was, is that as the faith grew, all right, and there was a proper priesthood, it was all a real, a real official thing. It really grew. You know, there were temples, there were priesthoods, blah, 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 and books written and all the doctrines and stuff like that, all based, and it went on for thousands of years. And what's interesting, and everything I'm saying, I mean, this has come from archaeology and history, all right? Although, in the Bible, at two points, I can't remember where, uh, but in the prophets, I think one is Isaiah, one is Ezekiel, all right? But you can look this up in a concordance. There's a reference on one occasion to the fact that Israel were worshipping the Queen of Heaven, all right? That was Semiramis. And another one where they were worshipping Tammuz. 
That religion was alive on the face of the earth all through the Old Testament history. And there were times when even Israel got embroiled in that false worship. And the prophets in the Old Testament, and it's there in the Bible, refer to the Queen of Heaven, and Tammuz refers to it. So history again verifies the truth of the Bible. It was a religion that was on the go for many, many, many years. Now, the way that this faith depicted, like their emblem, because you find that religions want to have an emblem, uh, human beings like, you know, symbolism. Interestingly enough, there is nothing in the Old Testament. The early church had nothing by way of an emblem. The, you know, the very idea of the cross being the symbol of Christianity is completely unbiblical. Completely unbiblical. That came in ages after the Bible was written. The early church had no sign. What did they have? They had Jesus and a changed life. They didn't need crosses. Stuff like that. But the point was the emblem that this Babylonian faith, you know, Tamils and Semiramis and Nimrod, do you know what their emblem was? It was a picture of this woman, Semiramis, holding a child, Tamils. And around her head, because she was the Queen of Heaven, and around the baby's head, because he was God become a man, they had halos, which was a pagan way of showing that these people are divine. Now then, this religion, throughout the Old Testament period, it went up, it went down, sometimes it grew, sometimes it declined, probably times it died out completely, and then someone would rediscover it and get converted to this old religion. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, we even... No, I'll come on to that in a moment, right, no. I'll save that for later, all right. Now then, at the time that the early church was growing, all right, you know, 100 AD, 200 AD, 300 AD, this religion was on the go. And they saw a tremendous chance for a comeback. Now, can you imagine what that tremendous chance was? Well, it was because here was Christianity that had now become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And what did it teach? It taught that this woman gave birth to a baby who was God become human. All right? So what did they do? Because these guys, they were clever. They merged their Babylonian religion with Christianity. Now what's interesting is that historians and archaeologists have discovered a lot about this Old Testament type religion, you know, thousands of years ago. And today, in the Catholic Church, the colour of the vestments are the same, of the priests in the Catholic Church, are the same colour as the vestments of the Babylonian religion. Because what happened with the emergence of the Catholic Church, it was that ancient Babylonian satanic counterfeit merging itself with the symbolism of Christianity and taking it over. Now that, that is what the Catholic Church is based on. Now what does the Catholic Church actually teach? Well, it does indeed teach that Jesus is God. So people think, oh well, it must be Christian, mustn't it? Well, no, not necessarily, not necessarily. Because it's not just enough to know that Jesus is God. Satan knows that Jesus is God and how he hates it. Satan knows that Jesus is God. But what is the Gospel? The Gospel, as the true church has always known, is that through Jesus' death on the cross, by coming to him in repentance, by trusting him as our Saviour, we can go to heaven. Because of what he's done. Not because of what we've done, 
but because of what he's done. Free grace. And throughout the New Testament, Paul condemns salvation by works at every point. Any attempt, anything that leads you to believe that you're going to get to heaven based on what you've done is satanic. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is the free gift of God in Christ. You accept it as a free gift. You realise you need it. You realise you're a sinner. You realise you're heading to the lake of fire. God's given you a way out in Jesus. You accept it. Boom, boom, that's Christianity. Nothing to do with us. We simply accept a free gift. Now, what does the Catholic Church teach? The Catholic Church teaches, yes, indeed, that Jesus is God. And teaches that Mary is the Queen of Heaven. See, weird, because the Bible doesn't say that. But here's the point. Jesus' death on the cross has provided a way of salvation. Now, what is this way of salvation that Jesus has, you know, won for us? Well, the teaching of the Catholic Church is this. If you become a better person, then you can merit the grace of Christ. Alright, I'll say that again. If you make yourself a better person, you can merit the grace of Christ. So, if you say, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to deal with sin in my life, I'm going to be a good person, I'm not going to be a bad person anymore, I'm going to be a good person, and when you do that and you're faithful at it, you are earning meriting the grace of Christ, so that you can enter into His grace. So, what they're saying is, that if you're good, then, then God will say, right, now you're being good, I'm willing to forgive you. You earn that grace of Christ. Now, what is the salvation that you actually have? Right, firstly, how do you merit the grace of Christ? The first thing you must do to merit the grace of Christ and therefore be eligible for salvation is you must be baptised by a Catholic priest. If you're not, then you're going to the lake of fire no matter what. Alright? Because there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the only means that there is for you to merit the grace of Christ. So the first thing you must do is you must be baptised as a baby or even as an adult by a Catholic priest. When that happens, you're born again and you're part of the church. Incidentally, the Anglican Church teaches exactly the same thing. All right? Remember, the Anglican Church came out of the Catholic Church and sadly brought far too much of it with it, all right? and it's never got shot of it. Okay? So that's the first thing you must do. Then you must live under the authority of the teachings and the doctrines of the Catholic Church as revealed through the Pope. The Pope is Christ's representative on earth. Jesus is present in the Pope. Right? Jesus is present in the post in the Pope. The Pope is called ah, the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. The Vicar of Christ. And even in the Anglican Church, when someone's wearing a dog collar, what are they? They're a vicar. Now, where does that name come from? Vicar, it comes from the word vicarious. And the word vicarious means instead of. The Pope is the Vicar of Christ. He is Christ to you. He's there instead of Jesus. And your local vicar, if he's going to be true to Anglican doctrine, he's there instead of Jesus. This is all evil stuff. You know, behind these harmless sounding words, that's what it is. So, you must live in submission to the teaching of the Catholic Church. Now then, if you go against their teachings in any way at all, there's only one way that you can be forgiven. Because when you sin, your salvation is temporarily put off. 
temporarily put off when you're in sin. Now, there are some sins that are called venial sins. They're not terrifically important, all right? But nevertheless, you've got to get them dealt with, or if you die in venial sin, you've had it downstairs, all right? Now, there's only one way you can deal with those sins. Only one way, having sinned, having gone against what the church teaches, there's only one way you can clear that with God and then, as it were, enter back into your salvation. And that is by confessing it to a Catholic priest who alone has authority from God to absolve you of that sin. Right? That's why a good Catholic must keep going to confession. There are other sins, all right, <laughs> other sins called... Uh, Hang on, venial and what are they? Mortal, Mortal sins. If, if you commit them, you've had it, period. That's it, it's all over, bub, you know? That's all over. Now then, obviously what happens is that, that the better a Catholic you are, the more in submission you are to the Catholic Church, the more that via confession with the priests your sins are being dealt with, okay, then the more you are earning the grace of Jesus. However, the point comes when you die. Now then, obviously, if you die a non-Catholic, that's it, lake of fire. Why? Being a non-Catholic. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. If you're a non-Catholic, it's a lake of fire. All right? But even if you're a Catholic, do you go straight to heaven like the Bible teaches? Well, no, you don't. No. Because there you go to a place called purgatory. Now, purgatory is an in-between place. On your way to heaven, you have to stop off at purgatory. Now, purgatory, to purge, to purge, that's where the word comes from. Now, the idea is that even when you die, even when you die, there's still an awful lot of undealt with sin in you, so you can't go straight to be to, in heaven, can you? No, 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 not if there's still sin in you, you can't go straight to be to heaven. So, therefore, you have to go to purgatory. Now, the idea of purgatory is that there it's a place of suffering, and you are purged and punished for the sins in your life, right? purged of your sins. Now, as luck would have it, if Catholic priests pray for you, they can speed up the amount of time you're in purgatory. So much so that there have even been times in the life of the Catholic Church, and it's never been rescinded, where you have what are called indulgences. And if you pay the church to pray for your beloved dead one, they'll get through purgatory and suffering quicker. It was one of the ways the Catholic Church financed itself. Indulgences. But the point is this. When you die, you go to purgatory and there you're suffering. But your transition, your journey through purgatory can be affected and sped up, speeded up by the authority of the Church on earth. All right. So, you know, that is why in the Catholic Church there's quite a bit of prayer for the dead. And the Anglican Church retains prayer for the dead. Have you ever noticed that in Anglican services? You will find whenever there's a disaster, a national disaster, the six o'clock news will always have the memorial service and you'll always get the Anglican, you know, whether it's the Archbishop or whoever, and there are prayers for those who have died in the accident, in the tragedy. The Anglican Church has retained prayer for the dead. Right? Doesn't believe in purgatory, but retains prayer for the dead. Can you see the Anglican Church has brought a lot of the Catholic rubbish out with it, you know? 
way off. So then, you can speed, the church can speed these people through heaven, through purgatory, into heaven by their prayers. Now then, obviously in the Catholic Church, there's a big emphasis on saints. Now, the Bible defines a saint as anyone who's believed on Jesus. If you're saved, you're a saint. Not so in the Catholic Church. You often hear about, you know, that someone has been sainted, don't you? Well, a saint is a Catholic. A Catholic becomes a saint when they make it out of purgatory and get into heaven. Now, how do you know when a Catholic has made it out of purgatory into heaven? Well, do you know? Because God tells the Pope. <laughs> and, and the Pope announces it. And the person becomes a saint. Now then, now then, now we're getting up to what's going on in heaven. You see, because also, the Catholic Church, all right, what they teach is, you, it's, it's no use coming to the Lord God. It's no use coming to Father and asking him everything, anything. Why not? Well, because you're a damnable sinner. He's got no time for it. He's a holy God, so it's no use going to him. Well, how about Jesus? Well, yeah, Jesus is a better bet. There's no doubt about it. He's a better bet because he did die on the cross. At least he sympathised. You know, their God is thunder. But at least Jesus sympathises a bit with us. But you're still pushing your luck going to Jesus. The chances of you getting prayer answered when you go to Jesus are pretty slim because, of course, you're such a damnable sinner. The fact that supposedly you've been saved and believed on Jesus has got nothing to do with this. You know, the church says you're a damnable sinner. You can't approach the Father. You can't approach Jesus. And you can't approach the Holy Spirit. So what do you do? Well, if you want prayers answered, your first approach is to Mary. You see, because Mary, who the Catholic Church teaches, Mary was sinless. Mary wasn't a sinner. And, and Mary didn't die. No, Mary ascended into heaven just like Jesus did. All right? And, and she's the queen of heaven. I wonder if we're talking about Semiramis here. I think we are. It's a very clever counterfeit, isn't it? You see, Mary is the Queen of Heaven. Now, because you can't come straight to Jesus, because Jesus isn't very sympathetic, but Mary is, so what you do is you, you pray to Mary, and then Mary works on Jesus. And when Mary's worked on Jesus on your behalf, do you know what Jesus does? He goes and works on Dad. Here's he. And, and when Mary has brought Jesus round, and when Jesus has brought the Father round, then your prayer gets answered. Isn't that good? But, oh boy, you've, you've got to go through Mary. Now, not only Mary, not only Mary, because you see, all the time, all the time, there are Catholics making it out of purgatory into heaven, you see. Well, they've done their time, as it were. So, so then you can go to them. Now, believe it or not, some of these guys up there, they're really good on healing, apparently. And the Catholic Church has catalogues of saints. Catalogues of saints. And depending on what you want to pray, the Catholic Church has got catalogued, because of course the Lord tells the Pope all this, doesn't he? Have got catalogued the best saint to pray to. See? So it's no use uh, praying to Thomas for healing, but he might be, uh, you know, but, but he might be really good at getting barren women pregnant. Please, sorry, sorry, you know, spiritually speaking, right. So, you've got to, you've got to fit the saint to the need. Because you can't go directly to the Lord. You've got to go via Mary or the saints 
and whichever saint, according to the dictates of the Pope, is the right one. So, we've got to ask the question, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about Christianity? Well, no, of course we're not. We're talking about something that has nothing in common with Christianity except that, like the Bishop of Durham, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, simply uses Christian language. And for that reason, for that reason, gets mistaken for being the true faith. Now, realise as well that the Catholic Church has never ever rescinded its doctrine that there is no salvation outside of itself. Official Catholic doctrine is that you and I are damned purely because we're not Catholics. Is he? No, you're not because you're a Christian as well. That's right. That's right. But this is official doctrine. All these things still stand. I mean, people in the Catholic Church can kind of dodge some of their doctrines and tone them down all they like. This is the teaching of the Catholic Church, which, if you go out and buy a book, all right, any book which is written by, you know, get a Catholic evangelistic book. A book which is trying to convert people to Catholicism and everything I've told you, you will read in those books. Because that's where I got it from. Catholics, I've just told you what the Catholics believe. All right, some of them don't want to admit it. Others in there don't believe half of what the Catholic Church teaches, so I ask, what are they doing there? I don't believe half the Communists teaches, so you won't find me in the Socialist Workers' Party. Simple, isn't it? Now, a question, are there genuine Christians in the Catholic Church? Now, the answer to that is yes, but something else has to be borne in mind. The Catholic Church in this country, England, is totally different from the Catholic Church, more or less anywhere else in the world. When you look at the Catholic Church here in England, you are looking at something which is quite exceptional. And the reason is that in this country, the Catholic Church, over the last 50 years or so, has had links with other churches, all right? Oh, let me just say as well, I'm using the word Catholic Church, not because I believe it's a church, because it's not, but because it's the word it uses for itself. Just, you know, I'm using that word just to identify it, all right? The Catholic Church is not a church, neither is the Anglican Church. It's not a church. Whatever it may or may not be, it's not a church, not biblically, not in any sense of the word at all. But the point is, in this country, the Catholic Church has had far closer ties with other churches than anywhere else in the world. And obviously one of the reasons for this uh, is that in this country, you know, sort of like, you know, going back to Henry VIII and all that, it was, it was basically because of him that the Anglican Church came into being, i.e., there were people who said, right, no more with the Catholic Church, we're going to dump that and we're going to have our own church, all right? So, therefore, the Catholic Church is historically weak in this country. It's the underdog. It lost. The Protestant churches won, the Catholic Church lost. Now, that doesn't make the Protestant churches genuine churches either. I'm just using the terminology that is needed so you know exactly who I'm talking about, you see. So, therefore, for various historical and political reasons, and particularly in the last 50 years or so, the Catholic Church only has one hope of surviving in this country, and that's to integrate with other churches. So that's what it's done. Now, for that reason, because the Catholic Church has opened itself to mixing with other churches that did have a lot of genuine Christians in, all right, therefore there are a lot of Catholics in this country and also in the States 
also in the States, who have become genuine born-again Christians. Genuine born-again Christians. And you will find as well that they largely, largely reject the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Let me just pause there, all right, and, 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 and just fill you in. Everyone, uh, sort of like Mass, when you think of the Catholic Church, you think of Mass, don't they? They're, they're equivalent of what the Anglicans will call communion, uh, which is also unbiblical. I mean, the reason we don't have communion here is because you show me in the Bible, it's not there, so we don't have it, simple as that, all right? But what the Anglicans or the Methodists or even the Pentecostals will call communion, the Catholics call Mass. Now, we need to understand what the Mass is. The Mass is the heart of Anglican worship, and it, uh, of, of Catholic worship. In exactly the same way that our love feast is the heart of our worship. Well, I'll tell you. <coughs> At the Mass, you've got a priest, all right? Now, I've already told you that you get your sins forgiven by a priest absolving you, all right? Now then, on what basis does the priest absolve you of sin? Well, the only way for sin to be forgiven, the Catholic Church teaches, is through the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Absolutely right, okay. So what happens is, at every Mass, at every mass the priest does this on behalf of the people who are there, okay. Now, because of the authority and the power vested in him as a priest of the Catholic Church, he takes kind of elements, be it wine or bread or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Now, because of the authority vested in him by God, these things literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. So that when you go to Mass, the priest, so he would claim, is literally giving you some of Jesus' literal physical body. Whatever it is, that wafer miraculously turns into a bit of Jesus' literal flesh. And that wine literally, supernaturally, because he's a priest and he's got the authority to do it, God turns it into Jesus' blood. Now, in you eating the flesh and drinking the blood, do you know what the priest is doing? He is sacrificing Jesus' life on the altar so your sins can be forgiven. At every Mass, Jesus is literally re-sacrificed so that your sins can be forgiven. You know, I mean, am I making you want to puke now? I mean, this is more like witchcraft. This is more akin to witchcraft, isn't it? Isn't it? Right, okay, so what I was saying is that although there are lots of people in the Catholic Church, they've become Christians and to a greater or larger extent often reject the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Now then, the question we must raise is, why on earth are they Catholics then? Why on earth don't they get out? I repeat, I do not believe in Marxism. I do not believe that what Marx wrote was correct. I think he was wrong. I think it was patent nonsense. For that reason, I am not a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. I am not a Trotskyite. I am not a communist. Because I think it's a load of rubbish. And wouldn't it be odd if I told you that I'm, I was in the Socialist Workers' Party, but I thought Karl Marx wrote a load of rubbish? You think, what are you doing? What are you doing? Now, in exactly the same way, when you meet people in the Catholic Church who say they're born-again Christians, they believe the Bible, oh yes, they know the doctrines in the Catholic Church are wrong, but it don't stop them going to Mass. What are you doing? Where's the integrity in that? I'll tell you, there's none. It's rank hypocrisy. And sadly, often the reason is, quite simply, because they've got some kind of cosy position and they don't want to, so if they do that, they'll lose all their friends. They'll, they'll earn the scowl of the priest. And every Catholic lives in fear of the priest. It's part of the doctrine. It works. Held it together for 2,000 years now, you see. But there's something else more worrying. 
more worrying. Because when you get these ecumenical sort of get-togethers, when you'll get people from house churches, leaders of house churches, and we will come under the category of a house church, all right, you know, for want of a better word, people like labels, okay. Whether it's house churches, Anglican churches, Methodist churches, United Reformed churches, you name it, getting together with Catholics for worship. Now, one of the very worrying things is that not all the Catholics who are baptised in the Spirit and speak in tongues, blah, 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 not all of them by any means reject the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Now, this is worrying. There's, um, like, in, in the Anglican Church, okay, there's a renewal movement. I mean, if you think that everyone in the Anglican Church is baptised in the Spirit, you've got another thing coming. Only a very small proportion of Anglicans are baptised in the Spirit. Only a small proportion of Anglicans are Christians, for heaven's sake. So in the Anglican Church, you've got spirit-filled Christians. So if you like, within this vast worldwide organisation called the Anglican Church, because right, that's what it is, it's a worldwide organisation, like the World Health Organisation. It's all it is, it's a religious version of that. You've got this, this group within it, all right, who are the Christians, the traditionalists, and then within that group, you've got a smaller subgroup, the Charismatics who are baptised with the Spirit and speak in tongues, blah, 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 blah. They believe in the gifts of the Spirit. So they've got their own little subculture in the Anglican Church, you see. And obviously, when you get set-ups like that, you always get publications, little groups of people who are vastly outnumbered. They always have a magazine, don't they? It's why human psychology works. So the Anglican Church has got Renewal magazine. You know, have you all seen Renewal magazine? You're lucky. I have many times, you know. It's, you know, but but that 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 mag, all right, that that comes out of the charismatic wing of the Anglican Church, and it's spirit-filled Christians. And by and large, although they all sell out on Anglican doctrine, you'll by and large find that they're Christian. I mean, up to here in false teaching, but they're genuine Christians. Now, in the Catholic Church, all right, you've got exactly the same situation. The Catholic Church has its official minority charismatic wing, all right. And they, too, have their own little Maggie. I'm not talking about Maggie Thatcher, but a magazine. All right. And it's called New Covenant. And that magazine, I've got copies if anyone wants to read them and doesn't believe what I'm going to say. That magazine is the official publication of the charismatic wing of the Catholic Church. All right? Now then, here's the point. The... the Charismatics in the Catholic Church who represent that wing and do this magazine, blah, 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 they do not renounce one doctrine of the Anglican Church. The charismatic wing of the Catholic Church officially upholds Catholic doctrine in its entirety. Purgatory, worship of Mary, the lot. Now, I don't know about you, that makes me shudder. That makes me, on the one hand, accept that there are genuine Christians in the Catholic Church, baptised in the Spirit Christians, because I've met some of them. But it also makes me very aware that there are not as many baptised in the Spirit Christians in the Catholic Church as we think. In the, in the charismatic move in the Catholic Church, Many, many Christians are baptised in the Spirit in the name of Mary. 
But because they're baptised in the Spirit, because they speak in tongues, because they do healing, because they say Jesus every now and then, and let's face it, the Archbishop of Canterbury don't say it very often, but because they say it every now and then, they're accepted as genuine Christians. And yet they believe in purgatory, they believe in Mary being the Queen of Heaven, they believe in everything that I earlier told you is the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And it raises this question, are they Christians? No, they're not. They're the equivalent of Mormons with their little own charismatic movement. It's demonic. It's demonic. It's satanic, as Julian would say. <laughs> it's very, very worrying. Now, the failure, the failure of this ecumenical movement, and it's why we as a church have nothing to do with it whatsoever. Let me say, let me say that we are happy to have fellowship with believers from wherever they come. But that's a different thing to feeling that we have to accept their churches as churches. You see, that's entirely, we're not talking about exclusive. Our fellowship with people is on the basis of Jesus. If people know Jesus, we have fellowship with them. The basis of our fellowship is Jesus, not agreeing on everything else. And that is why I, for one, am quite happy to have fellowship and friendship with believers, with Christians, in churches that if they, well, they don't bother to ask me, but if they ask me to go, I'd say, no, I wouldn't go because it's satanic. What your church is representing goes completely against what the Bible teaches. I will have nothing to do with it. If I, as a genuine Christian, am seen in it, I'm condoning it, and my conscience won't allow me to do that. But with you, dear brother, dear sister, let us have fellowship, because we're Christians. Can you see? We're not talking about some kind of exclusivism here where we don't have anything to do with anyone in the Anglican Church. I've got loads of friends in the Anglican Church. I pray one day they'll see the light. But what's the problem? They're praying I will. <laughs> I'm happy to agree to differ, and, you know, and some of them are as well, you know, the others aren't my friends anymore. But can you see the point here? There's all the difference in the world between having fellowship with any believer and feeling obligated to approve of their churches. If you believe their churches are based up to here on false doctrine. Now here we make a distinction between having fellowship with the individual and having fellowship with their churches. All right. But the tragedy is that in the ecumenical movement, by and large, is that if someone is making the vaguest of Christian noises, then that's enough. You know, in the, you know, in the Bible, Jesus' prayer, he was that they might all be one. So that's it, we're all going to be one. Well, I mean, what about the fact that Jesus' teaching is that the thing that we are one in is the truth? It's the truth. It's no use saying, oh, but we're all one in the Spirit. Well, no, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of truth. If you're one in the spirit, it's because you're one in the truth. If you're, you're saying to the truth, you're not one in the spirit. You're totally dishonouring God. And that's what the ecumenical movement is up to today. It's just saying, oh, you know, safety in numbers. Let's break all the barriers down and let's all get together. Let's all get together. That is crazy and it's very dangerous as well. Because you end up having fellowship with people who aren't Christians. How can you have fellowship with people who aren't Christians. And you see, the great tragedy is, I mean, so it's, you know, let's go back to the Bishop of Durham. Well, I mean, if the Bishop of Durham um, is, is, is known to be supported by other bishops, which he is, who are genuine Christians, because the Archbishop of Canterbury, he is a genuine Christian. But I'll bet you anything you like, he ain't going to sack the Bishop of Durham. Of course he's not. So the Archbishop, who is a genuine Christian, supports the Bishop of Durham. 
they all support each other. It's an unholy alliance. So the world looks on and they see the Archbishop of Canterbury or any believer in the Anglican Church. And, and they say, right, what's a Christian? And, and they say, well, it's, it's not, Jesus is God. He died on the cross to forgive us for our sins and he rose again from the dead, quite literally. And if you turn to him as your saviour, you're saved and you won't go to the lake of fire, you'll go to heaven. Boom, boom. And that's the position that genuine Christians in the Anglican Church take. And then the world says, right, okay, now then, but, but, but obviously the Bishop of Durham, he's in your church as well, isn't he? And so you say to the Bishop of Durham, what do you believe in? And his answer is, I, I believe in the Bible, but not that it's true. <laughs> right? That's his answer. I believe in the Bible, but not because it's true, but because I, it's not true, but I need to believe it. Now the world looks on, how can it tie up those two things? Can you see? How can it tie up the fact that men are standing together the ones who believe the Bible and the ones who totally reject the Bible and yet the world sees them standing together and then saying, and this is Christianity. Well, what can the world do? How can it decide between that? They're thinking, well, a Christian is someone who believes the Bible but he's someone who doesn't believe the Bible. But they're both bishops. You see, so if we are seen to stand, for instance, alongside the Catholic Church, the world looks on, and they're going to come to one of two, you know, two conclusions. The first conclusion they're going to come to is that we've run out of brain cells. That's the first conclusion they're going to come to. I think, you know, do these Christians have intelligence? I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he believes in the Bible. The Bishop of Durham, he doesn't believe in the Bible. They're both bishops. Have they got a brain cell between them, is what the world asks. So that's the first thing, Satan discredits Christianity by the world looking on and thinking we're a load of dopes. And the problem is that most Christians are. They don't think. They don't think. They don't seem to have the will to think through that they are in the same position as me, somewhat right of centre, being a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. It's, it's a nonsense. It's, it's the sort of thing that idiots do. You know, people with IQs of four or seven. So that's the first approach. Or the second thing, the world looks on and they say, what bunch of hypocrites. Bunch of hypocrites. But either way, Satan discredits the gospel, which is what he's after. Now in this church, we don't plan to make that mistake, which is why we don't get involved in that ecumenical movement out there. Now then, your question was, because I hadn't forgotten it. <laughs> the question was, is, is this movement going to turn into the, 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 the super church of the last days, which eventually will be headed up by the Antichrist himself? Now the answer to that is in one way yes and in one way no, and we've got to separate it. The first thing that we've got to realise is, is obviously the last days start when the rapture happens. We don't know when it's going to be. But when the rapture happens, I mean, it might be tomorrow, it might not be for another 200 years. I mean, we just don't know. There's no way of telling, all right? But when the, when the rapture happens, that will include every born-again believer on the face of the earth, no matter how deceived or unfaithful to Jesus they might be. Because remember, why are we going to heaven? Because we've accepted Jesus as our saviour. Is it because we're really excellent disciples? Is it because we're really undeceived and we're just full of the truth in our head? No! It's because we've accepted Jesus as Saviour. 
And one of the really nice things about salvation is, is that if you've got it without deserving it, you can't lose it through cocking it up. I mean, that's just logic, isn't it? It's grace. It's grace. So the point is that the rapture, every believer alive when the rapture happens, every believer alive, whether they're faithful or unfaithful, whether they're following the Lord or fallen away, they're born again, they're saved, boom, off they go. Now, what this means is that, yeah, all, all this ecumenical, this unity that's going on, that will continue to happen. But the real push won't happen until all the genuine believers are gone. You see, out there in the churches, it's still a mishmash. It's still a mishmash. I mean, some are Christians, some aren't Christians. You see? And whereas a lot of the Christians in there are dopes, even they wouldn't be so unfaithful and stupid as to let it go the whole hog. I mean, even the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, would draw a, a line at bowing down and worshipping the Antichrist. I think. But I don't know. But we'll never find out, given that he's a genuine believer, if the rapture happens tomorrow, off he goes. So the point is, yes, this unity that's going on will indeed, eventually, along with all other religions, end up the superchurch, which the Antichrist himself, when he arises, will eventually run. All right. Now then, just think, okay... In the Bible, it basically says that, 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 that the rule of the Antichrist, and remember, this doesn't happen until the Christians are gone, so it doesn't involve us, uh, or it won't involve, it's only after the rapture when all the Christians are taken that it happens, all right? But what basically is the new world order that the Antichrist will bring in? The Bible says it's a, kind, it's a revived Roman Empire. Now, what was the basis of the Roman Empire, all right? The basis of the Roman Empire is it was held together militarily, which means that if you didn't hold together, you got beaten up by the best army in the world. So it was held together militarily, all right? It was held together economically. They could apply sanctions against you and starve you to death, which they did against Israel on a number of occasions in the Old Testament, and it worked. Um, it was held together socially, you know, or sociologically, for people who like all the modern jargon. But it was also held together religiously. Now, you know, I mean, a lot of philosophers have realised you've got to have those four things. And the Roman Empire had it. But how was it held together religiously? Because you worshipped Caesar as God. You worshipped Caesar as God. God, in human form, was ruling the world. Okay? So, therefore, it makes absolute sense that the, the empire, that the, the Antichrist, is going to build, he's going to be the new Caesar. He will be worshipped as God which is what the Antichrist is after. He's going to get what he wants, albeit not for very long, though, and then God will deal with him. So then, the, the Antichrist will head up a revived Roman Empire and will be worshipped as God. All right. Now then, I've got to ask you a question here. Is it, is it a coincidence that in the Bible it says that, 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 that the religious side of things in the rule of the Antichrist is going to be governed from a city that is set on seven hills. Now then, my researches so far have come up with two places that I know of, cities that are set on seven hills. Sheffield is. <laughs> yes, it is. Sheffield is built on seven hills. However, further theological research led me to believe that it's not going to be Sheffield. <laughs> Rome is a city built on seven hills. And the Bible says that that is where this empire, spiritually, is going to be run from. Now then, where is and has always been the world base of the Catholic Church? Rome. That is not a coincidence. That is of prophetic significance. And all you've got to do is to get both brain cells working at the same time. 
and we come up with this inexorable conclusion that you cannot get away from the Catholic Church is satanic in the same way the JWs, the Mormons, you name it. Why? Because they're not leading anyone to Jesus, they're leading people away from Jesus. They are empowered by the God of this world. Communism is empowered by the God of this world and communism works for those human beings who don't feel a spiritual yearning. But they're very few and far between and hence communism now is crumbling. Satan has he's, he's, he's done its job. He's switching you know, tax now. Most people yearn for that spiritual dimension. So most of Satan's deceptive work is done through religion. Bit Buddhism, Islam, JWs, Mormons, or the Catholic Church. So, you know, that, that, that basically, you know, sort of, yes, it will eventually be that satanic super church of the end times. But, remember, by the time that really comes to the fore, it's after the rapture, so there won't be any true believers in it anyway. But it can only really take off when all the believers have been removed from it. So, in regards to it, let me say, if you, if, if you, I mean, firstly, we're not saying have nothing to do with Catholics. That would be silly. That would be like saying don't have anything to do with bank managers. You know, I mean, the average bank manager isn't a Christian. <laughs> Neither is the average Catholic. Neither is the average communist. So we're not saying don't have anything to do with Catholics. The question isn't do we have anything to do with them. The question is do we accept them as our brothers and sisters? The answer is no. Now, in regards to Catholics, the exceptions who are genuinely saved and yet still in bondage in the Catholic Church, our approach to them is, do we have fellowship with them? Of course we do. They're our brother and, they're brothers and sisters. Of course we have fellowship with them. But what we do not do is touch their church with a barge pole, and we seek through loving them, praying for them, and sharing the truth with them, to do everything in our power to draw them out of that satanic system into the freedom of being part of a biblical church. And the real challenge here, and this is what we've got to take to heart, whether it's, I mean, okay, the Catholic Church is 100% is demonic. Most other churches today, I mean, they're of a different ilk. They're, they're, you know, they're kind of much closer to Christianity, but they're still not very much to do with the Bible, all right? Now, if we want to see people getting out of unbiblical ca churches, Catholic churches, Anglican churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, the way to do it is to pray genuine churches into being, thereby giving people an alternative. Now, the strange thing here is we've got a reputation, this church, of, um, you know, can't wait to get in a fight with other Christians. Now, the history of this is ridiculous. We never get in a fight with other Christians, but what we find is that other Christians come and find us out and they try and fight with us. We don't want to fight with anyone. All we want to do is to get a biblical alternative. Now, if people ask us what we think, we're going to tell them. The same as if I ask them what they think, I'd expect them to tell me. But the point is, the real challenge is proper churches. And then there is an alternative to which we can say to people, well, look, get into something that's biblical, it's there, it's ready, it's waiting. And that if you do that, and if you're really faithful to the Bible in every respect, then the Lord will bless you. But if you keep toying around with all this compromise, all these doctrines that are tradition, they're, they're not from the Bible, they're nothing to do with it, then God ain't going to bless you and you're going to end up in a right old mess, which fundamentally is how you sum up Christianity in this country today. It is a right old mess, as simple as that. Right, I, I, I don't know if you want to come, come back on that at all. Do feel free to. You haven't touched on any of the verses about you. <laughs> Maybe it's the next one. Oh, well, um, 
you know, there are lots of things, you know, people come and they say, well, it says all over the place in the Bible that Christ wants his, his people to be together one. Together and, yeah, yeah. there's sort of, well, about the unity and they, they fire these at him. So it must be right, because the vicar says this, you know, it says whatever, that Christ wants one, you know, wants unity in the body or unity in the church or... Right. What you'll find throughout the New Testament, I mean, and this is just a trick that so many people play, is that they simply take out the bits of verses that suit them. Does the Bible talk about unity and being one in the Spirit? Yes, it certainly does. Does the Bible say very clearly that that unity is based on the truth of God's Word? Yes, it does. So any unity that is outside or against of what the Bible says is crazy. And if you read through the Bible, I mean read through Paul, you will find again and again he pitches into false doctrine. And he makes it very clear that false doctrine is finally demonic. Anything that goes against the truth of the Bible actually comes from the evil one. It doesn't come from God at all. Because everything that comes from God is going to be in accordance with the Bible. And indeed, you'll find the attitude that Paul takes. I mean, it's like, for instance, I mean, I'll just give you, um, just go to 3 John. Just give you one example, 3 John. We ask the question, what kind of unity does this represent? Um, oh, sorry, 2 John, the second letter of John. All right? Right, 2 John, just read verse 10. And John's writing to a church here. This is the Apostle John. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Now, what does this doctrine refer to? It refers to the teaching of the New Testament as handed on by the Apostles and Jesus. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting. For he who greets him shares his wicked work. Now, and is that, well, he's a Christian. Oh, the fact he's up to here with false teaching, that doesn't matter. It's unity, isn't it? No, the Bible says have nothing to do with them. Can you see? This, this unity at all costs is, is not in any way at all what the Bible says. If you just go to John 17, let's, let's just very quickly, John 17, are the, the main, you know, Jesus' prayer for unity. John 17. This is real quick. Oh, right, yeah, to, right, the Gospel of John now. Yeah, John wrote the Gospel of, yeah, this is the Gospel of John. Right, okay, now in John 17, you've got this prayer that Jesus is praying before he got crucified, okay. Now let's just go through the bit where he says um, about them being one. Uh, da -da -da, now, let's see, where is it? Um, right, okay, let's, let's go to verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Okay? Right, okay. Now then, just go back into verse 17. Verse 17. When Jesus prays, now he's, he's prayed here for us, every believer, that they might be one. But look at the first bit. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. See? Verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself so that they also may be consecrated in truth. What is truth? It's the Bible. Any unity based on something other than the truth of the word of God is just folly. It is absolutely ridiculous. 
Um, <coughs> and in time, you see, the point is that if you, if you say to one of, you know, they say, I mean, you're vicar, right? The, this this kind of quintessential vicar, right? But 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 this 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 vicar who shall stand for us as a symbol of, you know, this whole thing. They say unity, unity, unity. Jesus prayed that we may be one. All right. And so you say to them, uh, oh right, so it doesn't matter what you believe, does it? And they say, oh yes, it does. And you say, what do you mean? And he will say, well, we wouldn't be one with a Buddhist, would we? And you'd say, oh, no, no, I suppose not. Why is that? Well, a Buddhist isn't a Christian, is he? Oh, why isn't a Buddhist a Christian? Well, because he doesn't believe that Jesus is God. And he doesn't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And he doesn't believe the Bible. So, obviously, we can't be one, can we, with someone who doesn't actually preach or believe the Christian gospel. And you say, oh, right, I've got it. And then you say, hang on, vicar. And he says, yes. And you say, what about the Bishop of Durham? Everything you've just said about the Buddhist applies to him. What about the Catholic Church? Everything you've just said about the Buddhist applies to them. And you'll find he does a complete turnaround. He will start waffling and he will start saying why it's okay to have fellowship with some non-Christians, but why it's not okay to have fellowship with other non-Christians. And he's talking patent nonsense. So what these people do is they just ensure they're never challenged. And if you challenge them, they call you a troublemaker. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit's working for unity. You're causing trouble. That's the devil coming through you. Can you see? And they've got themselves wrapped up. They've got their defences going at every point. They're, they're frankly into nonsense. And if you listen very carefully to what they say, they never address the real issues. The real issues. How come? How come? that, uh, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, that, that most Anglican charismatics who will drop dead at being asked to worship with a Buddhist will be happy about worshipping with a Bishop of Durham or a Mohammedan. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, a couple of years ago, the Islam movement officially absolved the Anglican Church from heresy. The Anglican Church has recently been officially absolved from heresy by the Muslim faith. Now, why is that? Because the controversy that the Muslims have always had with the Christians is that the Muslims teach it is heresy to say that Jesus is God. And the Muslim Church has recently, sorry, the Muslim faith has recently officially absolved the Anglican bishops of heresy. So the point is, why would the why is it that the average charismatic Christian in the Anglican Church wouldn't quite rightly try to worship or have fellowship with a Muslim, but they're happy to have fellowship with the Bishop of Durham? I mean, you you know, ask you know, ask these vicars, well, would you kick the Bishop of Durham out of your church if he turned up? Oh goodness, no, no, no. Well, the Bishop of Durham's belief are more akin to the Muslims than the Christians. Or the Catholic. You see, and it's these ridiculous exceptions they make. You know, so, so it's a patent nonsense. But this I'll say, you won't get any truth out of them. You won't get the slightest bit of common sense out of them. Because they don't, you know, they're aware of the logic of their position. They can't afford to face up to it. They cannot afford to face up to it. They've got too much riding onto it. And you'll find them getting angry and going away and smearing you before they actually listen to you. I mean, it's tragic, but that is the depth of the bondage that these people are actually in. Um, I mean, as I say, it is a total nonsense. 
you know, the position that these people get into. Um, and, you know, it's a nonsense that we will not allow ourselves to get into in this church. And it's why we maintain, as indeed is quite biblical, in the New Testament, each church was quite independent. There was no coming, there's no sense of denominations or anything like that. We just keep clear. Not of the Christians, not of the Christians, but we keep clear of the institutions. They're nothing to do with us, but the believers in them, praise the Lord, we'll have fellowship with them anytime. Mark? Um, <coughs> well, all what you've been saying over the last hour is something of me. In a few time. Well, I couldn't think of anything else to do, sorry. I, <laughs> sorry. In a few time, we're doing um, a service at work. In, it's going to be a place, remembrance, thanksgiving, blah, blah. But it will involve Muslim, Theobald, Patrick, whatever. Now, I've been asked to do reading at that. And up until today, I've said, yeah, it just put in my mind, what do you say about Harriet? Or should I know back then? Well, I don't know, go and take a collection of cough and solve the problem overnight. Out in a service, which, you know, you can have other ladies, Jewish, Christians. Yeah, I've, I've... In the truth, have you found... Have you found... Have you found... Have you you're standing with it. You're standing with it. I mean, it's like, for instance, some years ago, a friend of Blinders from school um, was getting married, and we were invited to the marriage. Now they were Catholic. I mean, they weren't Christian, but they were Catholic. So, Blinder and I were quite happy to go to this Catholic church to sit there and watch the wedding. We weren't anything. We were just there. I'd be happy to go to a spiritualist wedding. It wouldn't bother me. I'd be happy to go to a communist wedding. That's no problem. You're not there by condoning it. You're just there because there's a wedding. But I wouldn't have taken part in it. Um, and it's like the position I take nowadays, and this may explain why most of the teaching I do is here nowadays, uh, but the position, <laughs> the position that I tend to take is that if people, if I'm asked to go somewhere, say to an existing church, then it's got to be on the understanding that I may well specifically teach on what that church has got, you know, is, is going against the Bible in. Um, so, I mean, it's like, I've, you know, if I was asked to preach at an Anglican church, I'd say, right, but you've got to give me the freedom, all right, to be able to demonstrate from the Bible why the Anglican church isn't biblical. So, I mean, <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, but it's a genuinely serious question. It's a very serious question. It's a matter of conscience. Because one's got to be so aware that often one's very presence is going to be taken as going along with it, as condoning it. Which it certainly isn't. Which it certainly isn't. Um, you know, so, so, you know, these are very difficult questions. But what I want to emphasise again, because, um, is that what we are not saying, we are not saying that we have nothing to do with genuine believers. We have fellowship with other Christians, no matter where they are. They might be nowhere, they might be in Catholic, it doesn't matter. We're drawing a distinction, our fellowship is with all believers. I'm talking about churches as corporate entities, with those, by and large, I have nothing to do with. But people in them, yes, they're our brothers and sisters. Praise the Lord. So we're not talking about an exclusivism. You know, we're not one of these fellowships to say, now don't you go near those people. 
We're not saying that in the slightest. We're drawing a distinction between the believers within a corporate body and whether or not that corporate body...